Christ, our great high priest, has entered into the holy places, not with, the, with an ephod of 12 stones, the names of Israel, but with the names of his people uh, eternally graven there and on his hands. Let's pray before we begin. Father, in the words that we've already brought before you today, Ephesians chapter 3, um, you are our Father, um, Father from whom every family on heaven and earth is named. Pray that according to the riches of your glory, may you grant us to be strengthened with power through your Spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Would you use your word to accomplish those good purposes that you would be glorified now and forever. Amen. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus instructed his listeners to enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, he said, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Seems that so many people are convinced that there are many ways to God, uh, but Jesus says that they are wrong. There are many, many ways away from God, but there's only one way to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And this reminds me of a, of a circle. There are 360 degrees in a circle, ways that can be divided up. I started to watch a YouTube video today that took me down that rabbit trail. Uh, as to why, it's fascinating, probably back to the Babylonians and math things that I don't understand, so you can look about that later. But uh, there are 360 degrees that we measure that by. And the difference between those degrees, it start off, starts off really, really small. I was going to try to illustrate that. That was another rabbit trail that I decided to not follow down. Many ways to be distracted from sermon prep on a Sunday morning. Those degrees start off very, very small, practically uh, unnoticeably different between, you know, 90 degrees, if we're heading in this direction, and 91 or 89. But the longer that you follow those lines from the center point of that circle, the farther they take you from the center and the more noticeable the dis distance and the difference is. Really out into infinity, where the distance between those lines, not even noticeable from the straight line that you had hoped to follow. Jesus' teaching about the wide gate and the easy road to destruction is speaking primarily in Matthew 7, I think, to unbelievers, because the end of that path is destruction, for those who refuse to trust in him. But I think that a similar danger exists for Christians, and it is the danger that Paul warned the Colossians about. And in warning them, and God the Holy Spirit inspiring that text and preserving it and providing it for us, Paul, 2,000 years later, is speaking to us here at Risen King Church uh, with the same clarity and intentionality that he was speaking to the Colossians 2,000 years ago. And the danger of trusting in Christ for salvation, yes, yet being distracted from Christ. That's the danger, right? Thinking that's like, okay, that, that decision or, or that genuine trust in Christ once that's being done or having been done in the past, everything else is, is good, right? There's, there's no other danger. There are no other warnings than I need to be aware of. Scripture is clear that that's not the case. Colossians is clear that that's not the, the case. We can be distracted from Christ even having started off trusting in him. Paul has expressed his concern for the Colossians twice now in chapter 2. Uh, verse 4, if you're not open to Colossians, I know I referenced Ephesians 3, then I mentioned Matthew 7. Uh, Colossians is where we're actually going to stay. I'll mention a bunch of other passages too, but you don't have to turn there. Do turn to Colossians chapter 2 though. Chapter 2, verse 4, he said this, after having talked about Christ being the mystery of God, being the one in whom all are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, he says this, I say this, I'm talking about Christ in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Then in verse 8, he picks that theme up again. Keith preached this to us a few weeks ago. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Before he raised that concern in chapter 2, he took time to demonstrate to them at length, uh, especially in 15 to 20, but before and after that also, he took time to demonstrate to them the point that Christ is everything. 
Christ is everything. And now he's made a second point, that Christ has given you everything. Christ is everything, and from that fullness, right, Christ has given you everything. And how? In himself. So in Christ, you have everything that you need. Christ is everything, and in Christ, you have everything that you need. That's that fullness that he's speaking about. The fullness of deity dwells bodily in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, how does that play out? Verses 15 to 20 of chapter 1, right? We tried to take some time to go through that. In Christ, you have everything that you need. You have fullness in Christ. You have heart circumcision in Christ. You have your death, burial, and resurrection in Christ. And you have a glorious victory over the devil and his demons in Christ. In Christ, you have everything that you need. But even as Christians, we are still in danger of being deluded or taken captive by things other than Christ. So what are some examples of plausible arguments, verse 4? What are some of the things like philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and that are not according to Christ? What are some of the things that threaten to captivate our hearts away from Christ? even if it's by a single degree, taking us on a path that is ultimately leading us not toward Christ, but away from Christ. Paul is going to get specific. He's introduced aspects of what he's going to say, and now he's getting into it, especially in these verses, 16 to 19. It's our passage for this morning, and then, Lord willing, next week, 20 to 23. He's going to explain the things that threaten to captivate our hearts away from Christ. He's going to show us that our hearts can be taken captive away from Christ by both rules and by experiences. Our hearts can be taken captive away from Christ by rules and by experiences. When we think about false religions, and if we were to think about that circle illustration, right, like the, the, the men and women that we prayed for uh, from Tibet and in India, Right? They're not one degree off. Right? In worshiping idols, false gods, they're, they're really more like 180 degrees off. They're, they're going in the opposite direction. And those, those dangers can be very clear to us. But what about the things that are just a little bit off, that sound really good, that look, maybe come from a really, really good source? And when we talk about rules and we talk about experiences, it's not like we can discount the, the fact of either of those things. Because in our practices, in seeking to follow Christ, are there rules? Yes. And is there, ex- is there experience? Yes. Right? This is why they're so close, yet so dangerous. Because both in rules and in experiences, we can actually be drawn away from Christ. There's that subjective and, and objective aspect of it, and all these different things. So it's not chuck all rules and chuck all experiences. But it's don't be captivated by rules or by experiences. That was the danger that the Colossians are facing. We certainly face those dangers as well. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 19 then. Therefore, which makes me want to preach the whole series again. Therefore, let be, because of Christ. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. First, in verses 16 and 17, we have this first warning. Don't be taken captive by rules. Don't be taken captive by rules. The rules that he lists are Uh, I think what we could call biblical traditions because he's talking about things that are found uh, in the Old Testament law. These are the examples that Paul gives to us. So we're going to understand first a little bit uh, 
the examples from the Old Testament law that Paul is giving. What are these rules that we don't want to be taken captive by? Well, first he says uh, things and questions about food. Leviticus chapter 11, God provided the Israelites with detailed instructions about food, what they were allowed to eat, what they were not allowed to eat. The animals that they weren't allowed to eat were spoken of as unclean for them or, or detestable for them. Those instructions in Leviticus chapter 11 conclude with these words, you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. So there are instructions in the law about food. There are also, when we look at drink, it's not the same type of instructions about what they could drink. It's not like if Leviticus chapter 12 said, you know, this type of water, these type of grapes, uh, this type of this, this type of that. So there weren't the same types of instructions in the law about what they could drink, but we know that God's people recognized that this too could make them unclean. Uh, Daniel chapter 1 is an example that popped into my mind this week for this. In Daniel chapter 1, Daniel and his friends are taken captive to Babylon uh, and forced into the king's service. They were then given a portion of the king's food and of the wine that he drank. Even the leftovers of a king are pretty good. Uh, So that's what they were offered in order to strengthen them and make sure they had the nourishment that they needed in order to serve properly. But it says Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. You see that echo from Leviticus chapter 11? He would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. It was not because wine was evil, but because the Babylonian king was a Gentile, uncircumcised in heart and in flesh, who worshipped false gods. So the food and the drink that came from his table would also have been defiled, both the food and the drink. So both food and drink could be unclean and defiling for God's people. Then Paul gives this third category, questions of food, questions of drink, and then the third is actually broken into three parts, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Leviticus chapter 23, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. And he goes on to describe seven different festivals that God called his people, the Israelites, to celebrate. Things that that marked out their calendar for them. So we have festivals in the law or feasts. We also have new moons. Numbers chapter 28 verse 11 says, at the beginnings of your months. Now our our calendars uh, mess everything up with the moon schedules, right? Other peoples are a little bit more organized uh, across the world. Different traditions uh, have the months according to the moon. We're all over the place with our months, Uh, but this is what they did. So the beginning of their month, a new moon. At the beginnings of your months, you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord. So the beginning of each month, a new moon, there was something specific to do and worship to the Lord. And finally, there are the laws regarding the Sabbath. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 2 through 3, for example, says, You shall be holy, for I am the Lord. I, the Lord your God, am holy. This is the same formula he uses throughout the law. The same thing that he said about not eating those certain animals or certain insects, certain types of fish. He constantly uses this refrain. Why is the point of this law? For I am holy, you must be holy. This is how you demonstrate your holiness. Leviticus 19, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. These last three, festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths, uh, Paul's just not picking things out of the air. They're actually joined together in a number of places in the Old Testament, summarizing what we could call the calendar obligations or the holy days from the law. So in different times, whenever they're summarizing everything that happens in those chapters as to what does the calendar of an Israelite look like, They summarize those things, both in the Old Testament and then into into the New as well, uh, as festivals, and new moons, and Sabbaths. So these are the holy days that we find in the law. Paul joins them together as well. He warns the Galatians about something similar to what he says to the Colossians, and he says, you're observing days, and months, and seasons, and years. 
certain days that they needed to do things in honor to the Lord, certain uh, months that they needed to do things on those new moons, certain seasons when it came to planting or harvesting, certain years when it came to uh, those Sabbath years or the Jubilee at the ends of those, if you're familiar with, with more of those different calendar obligations, holy day things. So the examples of biblical traditions that Paul gives from the Old Testament law are in three categories, food, drink, holy days. He gives this same basic grouping in Romans chapter 14, passage I hope you're familiar with if you were here in July. He said to the Romans, one person esteems, is convinced, acts out that one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. Uh, the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, the one who does not eat, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to him, gives thanks to God. So what was the point of these rules? So you consider uh, reading through Leviticus. Leviticus can be a hard book to read through, right? You get to that portion of your yearly Bible reading plan, if you're doing that, you're like, whew, that's a lot of rules. I mean, we're in Exodus reading about breastplates and ephods and things like that. We were like, when do we move back into a narrative or something like that? But it was an important part of God's law for his people. We don't want to just pass over it, but it is helpful to have a little bit of a context. What's the point about these foods? Well, the categories of food and drink and holy days in the law served as specific external ways by which God's people could visibly demonstrate that they had been set apart. They were separated from the Gentile nations living around them. They were surrounded by peoples who were not God's people and whose practices they were not supposed to partake in. They didn't eat like the Gentiles or with the Gentiles. They didn't drink like the Gentiles, and they didn't follow the calendars of the Gentiles. These basic categories that we find in life, eating, drinking, and, and when you do which things and what holy days you observe, really, I think, encapsulates all of life. That's why Paul would say to the Corinthians, whether you eat or drink, the most mundane things that happen in your life, whether you do or don't, and whatever you do or don't, do all to the glory of God. That's the lesson that Paul, that Paul, that God was giving to the Israelites in this. You know, another example of those distinctions from the, from, between Israelites and non-Israelites, between Jews and Gentiles, another distinction is what we talked about a few weeks ago, which was circumcision. Really, these things are very connected with this. Each of these things were physical signs pointing to spiritual realities. All of humanity was sinful and therefore unholy and unclean, unwelcome before God, unqualified to live in God's presence. So God, in his grace, chose Abraham and his descendants to be holy before him. We heard about that from Stephen in his masterful sermon from Acts chapter 7 this morning. God set apart Abraham and his descendants, that physical people, the nation of Israel, he set them apart from all the peoples of the world to be his people. He right? didn't, just, didn't just move them this way, right? It was the people that were far from God, which was everyone, and he chose Abraham and his descendants to bring them close. He set them apart to himself, and he gave them the law with these signs, these physical, physical external, visible things for them to live out the holy status that they already had. I am the Lord. I have made you holy. Now you must live what you are. You must live holy. So you're going to live different. You're different from them. You're going to live different from them. You're going to eat different. You're going to drink different. You're going to have different days. And just like circumcision, these things were physical signs, like eating and drinking and holy days, pointing to spiritual realities, a need for lives of holiness down to the most mundane of details. Here in Colossians, Paul is reminding them that these things, these rules, these biblical traditions were no longer necessary for God's people. As followers of Christ, the biblical traditions of the Old Testament did not apply to them because the Old Testament law had been fulfilled 
in Christ. The law needed to be obeyed, and no one could obey it, but Christ obeyed it. Christ obeyed all of it, and he did that, perfect obedience, for us. And there were positive things that the law said, you must do these things, and there were consequences or curses for those who didn't do those things. Christ fulfilled all of it and that he obeyed where we couldn't obey and then he took the curse, the punishment that we deserved for that disobedience. So both in its do this and if you don't do this, these are the consequences. Christ fulfilled the one in his life and fulfilled the other in his death. He fulfilled the law for us. God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands He set it aside, nailing it to the cross of Christ. We used aspects, I used aspects last week to try to think of that debt in monetary value. But that debt, that record of what we have broken could be just taken from the law. Have you kept the law? No. So you are liable to its legal demands. The curse of God would fall on you. And yet Christ took that on himself, gave you his righteousness. Your debt is canceled. The law has no power over you. It has been fulfilled by Christ. Paul is referring to this fulfillment in verse 17 when he writes, these pronouns replace a noun in order to avoid repetition. These is a pronoun, demonstrative pronoun. This, that, these, or those. Grammar is so fun. These, food and drink, festivals, new moons, and Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So we have two things. We have the idea of shadows, and the opposite of shadows, or not really opposite, but what the shadows are, see the arrow, pointing to is what he calls the substance, or the reality itself, or, or even the, the body Right? The difference between the shadow and the body. You see that? It's a great picture. The difference, the blurry outline of those things. Hebrews and this passage are really the biggest aspects where we see this. So laws regarding food and drink and laws regarding holy days, in reality, all of the law were shadows pointing to Christ and shadows that were fulfilled in Christ. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The danger facing the Colossians is seen in trying to understand aspects of this and that don't let anyone pass judgment on you in regard to these things. So as best we can tell, trying to recreate the scenario based off of this warning, because Paul doesn't take a chapter to say, by the way, here, sometimes he does, here he does not say, by the way, here's exactly what the Old Testament, what these false teachers were teaching. Here's an outline of what they say. So we have to kind of rebuild what was the problem that they were facing based off of the instructions that Paul does give. But as best we can tell, the false teachers in Colossae were using biblical traditions or rules found in the Old Testament, saying these are rules that still must be obeyed, promising through the obedience to those rules something better than just Christ. You want to follow Christ? Yeah, we've got to follow Christ, right? They're not saying don't follow Christ. They're saying, yeah, follow Christ. Matter of fact, uh, it's Christ plus. You get even better when you follow Christ and you obey these rules. That will lead you and give you fulfillment with a capital F, right? Yeah, you're fulfilled in Christ and you get better than that when you obey these rules. I think that's what they are saying here. And they were requiring that which God no longer required. And not only requiring that of themselves, but requiring that of other people and passing judgment on those who didn't follow them in following these rules for that extra holiness. Pass judgment. Does that phrase sound familiar? We talked about passing judgment at all recently. Passing judgment versus despising. We didn't talk about it in Colossians, but we talked about it with the conscience from Romans chapter 14. The weak 
were in danger of passing judgment on the strong. The strong were in danger of despising the weak. Paul says neither of you are to do that, but instead you are to receive each other in love without passing judgment, without despising. The brothers and sisters in Rome who had weaker consciences about particular issues had been exhorted by Paul not to pass judgment on those who lived differently from them. This is the same exhortation in Colossians, but definitely from a different angle. Instead of telling the false teachers, don't pass judgment, he's talking to the believers themselves, the church at large, saying, don't let them do this. Don't let them rule over you in their weakness and in their error. He's not addressing just the weak, and his exhortation is, don't let anyone, let no one do this to you. Don't be enslaved. Don't be taken captive by these false teachers and their rules, even when the rules come from the Old Testament. Even when the rules are biblical, we can still be taken captive by them, away from Christ. Don't allow yourself to be taken captive by those requiring what God doesn't require because they are leading you away from Christ. We can ask these questions, similar to questions that we asked in that conscience series, and I love how the Lord has brought these aspects together. I told you it was going to come back up in Colossians. Here's where it's coming back up next week, too. We can ask these questions. Can a Christian be physically circumcised? Can a Christian eat only clean foods according to Leviticus 11? Can a Christian observe the Sabbath? Yes. Of course a Christian can do those things, but must a Christian be physically circumcised? Must a Christian eat only clean foods? Must a Christian observe the Sabbath? Paul's answer here and in other passages is no. Remember I said the warning is when you go from what a Christian can to what a Christian must, there should only be a few things that fill out the rest of that sentence. The more that we expand a Christian must, the further we're moving away from biblical Christianity and the fulfillment that we have in Christ. There are things, but it's not everything. Why this radical change from the biblical traditions required in the Old Testament, right? A guy picked up sticks for his fireplace, campfire, on the Sabbath, and they killed him. You eat unclean foods, you are separated from God's people back out to the Gentiles. So it's not like there were, like, the important laws and the unimportant laws. Like, oh, well, murder, yeah, definitely. But like Sabbath or circumcision or, or eating ham, not a big deal. That is not how the Old Testament law portrays that. Time after time, don't eat this, don't observe the Sabbath, don't have these inappropriate sexual relationships, don't murder in this way, for I am the Lord your God. I'm holy, you must be Holy. So the weight of the entirety of the law is not just like separated into things that were important and things that were not important. Like the Old Testament and New Testament, they don't allow those type of distinctions. There's a unity to the holiness found in the law that had to have been obeyed. And now Jesus and then Paul are just kind of like, you know what, that doesn't matter anymore. That is a radical shift. Why this radical shift? Because these things were only a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belonged, belongs to Christ. So with the death and resurrection of Jesus, a radical change has taken place. Why the radical change? Because there's been a radical change. We are under the new covenant, not the old. And according to Paul, to require new covenant Christians to follow the biblical traditions that God required of old covenant Israelites is to abandon the substance for the shadow. To require new covenant Christians, that's us, to follow the biblical traditions that God required of old covenant Israelites is to abandon the substance for the shadow. Let no one pass judgment on you in regard to your following of the Old Testament law because it was a shadow and now you have the substance. 
That's what verses 16 and 17 are saying. We like to eat at Olive Garden. It's like Olive Garden. I'm not saying it's like really authentic Italian cuisine and I do like more than just breadsticks, but I like the breadsticks. When you sit down to eat at Olive Garden, you get a menu from the server. You get the regular menu, but you also get the extra menu. You know what I'm talking about? The extra menu doesn't just have a bunch of words and prices. The extra menu has all of the pictures of the specials. Right, Robbie knows what I'm talking about. Jake's with me over here. So you get the special menu covered in pictures of the delicious food that you can order. I mean, you just start to salivate. So imagine that you order one of these special dishes, and then when the server brings the dish out to you and sets it in front of you, you say, actually, can I please just have the menu back? I just really want to look at the pictures of the food that I ordered. That is trading the substance for the shadow. Or what if a couple has to be separated from each other during their engagement? Aww. So they write letters back and forth. Do you guys know what letters are? <laughs> they write letters back and forth. Those are special letters. So of course they're going to save them. Right? And then finally the wedding day arrives and they say their vows, they exchange rings, they seal their covenant with a kiss, they celebrate at their reception with gathered family and friends for a few hours until finally they climb into the car and they head off for their first night together as a married couple. Upon arriving at the hotel, the bride gets out of the car to check into the hotel. In the lobby, she starts to look around for her groom. He's nowhere to be seen. So maybe he has something special planned. I don't know. She waits 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And then finally, she gets concerned. She heads back to the car. He's sitting in the driver's seat reading the letters that she wrote to him during their engagement. Oh, he just loves those letters. So sweet. She asks, aren't you going to come with me to the hotel? No. He replies, I just want to spend the night here reading the letters that you sent me while we were engaged. That's good enough for me. That is trading the substance for the shadow. The Old Testament promises and rules and traditions, they all find their fulfillment in Christ. The types and shadows of the law, like food and drink and holy days, they have been replaced by the fullness of Christ, which is what they always pointed to. Who wants to stare at a shadow when the substance, the thing itself, is there, right in front of them, to be enjoyed? You know, the thing that astounds me the most in all of this is how our hearts, our minds, our sinful flesh can twist everything to take us captive away from Christ. Even biblical traditions or rules, Old and New Testament, everything can be used to capture us away from Christ. Not only can we sinfully drift away from Christ through disobedience to his law, we can also sinfully drift away from Christ through a faithless obedience to his law. Drift is not just found in disobedience. Drift can also happen through faithless obedience, even to the rules, commands that God has given to us in his law. The ministries of the prophets make this clear. Stop with your sacrifices. I'm sick of them. Forget about your circumcision because your hearts are filthy. Stay away from my temple. Your offerings are polluting them. Oh, were they unclean animals? No, they were unclean offerers. The ministry of Jesus makes this clear. The ministry of the apostles makes this abundantly clear. That you can drift through faithless obedience just like disobedience. John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath who had been an invalid for 38 years. I'll be 38 in October. My entire lifespan, this man was unable to move. He needed rest. Right? He, needed a, he needed a break. He needed blessing. He needed a Sabbath rest from the curse. And Jesus is going to offer it to him. Not just offer it. Jesus is going to give it to him. He heals him. He gives him Sabbath. 
And the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, they were furious about the breaking of their biblical traditions regarding the Sabbath. They opposed Jesus because of it. They wanted to kill Jesus because of it. And in his answer to them, he said this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have, oh, sorry, I skipped over. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, one that God used to write the law, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So if we are reading and we are studying and we're seeking to follow the Old Testament law and it is not pointing us to Jesus, then we are misunderstanding it. Every text, Genesis to Revelation, points us to Christ. And if we think that we can follow that apart from Christ, we have been captured. We're being led away from Christ. There is no rule that you can follow that will make you holy. There is no rule that you can follow that will make you holy. No external thing will draw you closer to Christ simply by the doing of it. There must be faith. Faith without works is dead, James wrote. Yes, Amen. But works without faith are also dead. Like a child who obeys all the rules while his heart seethes with arrogance and disdain for his parents. Or a husband who leads and provides and protects while he inwardly criticizes his wife and gracelessly condemns his children. Or a pastor who demands external conformity to a form of godliness without faith-filled dependence on Christ. Match the standard on the outside. Whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones is what Jesus calls those things. Don't be taken captive, even by biblical traditions or rules, because our sin is so viral, pervasive, evil, it can twist everything to take us apart from Christ, even rules, even traditions, even ones that are rooted in scripture. The second danger that Paul warns us about is in verse 18. Don't be taken captive by experiences. Let no one disqualify you. You can see the, the similarity between verse 16 and verse 18. Let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind apparently the false teachers in Colossae had their special secret ways to supercharge their spirituality and they were seeking to bring the Colossians along with them so he gives these examples like asceticism or uh, it could also be translated as, as just humility or maybe even a false humility and so maybe this is, uh, is this an external? Is this an internal? Are they always talking about how humble they are? That's kind of ironic, isn't it? It's like if you have to talk about how humble you are, you know that's not humility, right? Asceticism, this false humility, it could have been a practice of fasting, an extreme practice of fasting, uh, to put them in an extra spiritual state of mind or being. Perhaps as they starved themselves, they began hallucinating, having visions of angels, which would have been demons. And they like to speak about these visions to show how much more spiritual they were over everyone else because they had uncovered a secret wisdom. They had a special method. They had communed with angels there were people in Corinth that did the same thing, called themselves like super apostles. And Paul's like, well, let me defend my ministry through how much I've suffered as opposed to how much they've had success. Right? They're boasting about themselves. I want to boast about Christ. And the difference between those two ministries, maybe there's something similar to this. So they had this extreme humility they wanted to make sure everybody knew about. <laughs> 
They had these, this idea of uh, worshiping angels. They had had visions and they insisted and they talked about them and they went into detail about them, gathering people together to make sure that they had heard about the experiences that they had had and how that made such a difference in their spiritual lives. But Paul says what they're actually doing in insisting on their own humility, they were being puffed up. They were actually acting in fleshly, sinful arrogance which became obvious as they passed judgment on and, and disqualified or condemned everyone else. You know, thinking through this and, and trying to understand what Paul talks about, so that's the asceticism and then uh, the worship of angels. Kind of hard to understand exactly what's happening here, but I, I think there is that case of, of that extra special worship. You know, some, some sort of a communing with angels, maybe in the visions that they were having. It's kind of hard to piece together what this is. But they were also having these visions. And that's why I just kind of, I think these are just experiences that they're saying make them that much better. We do have experiences. Right? But we can be taken captive by them as, as easily as we can be taken captive by rules. But I was thinking through this and it's like, well, where, where has this been something that I've pursued? Where's something that we see around us that could be taking us captive by experiences? And I know I've never been confronted by anyone judging or condemning me for not worshiping angels with them. Maybe you have. I'm not, not trying to mock. I've just never faced that. Uh, but there are a variety of experiences that we can be arrogantly convinced make us better Christians than everyone else. We talked about that in that conscience series as well, right? You know, perhaps it's our style of worship or your preferred method of prayer. I always use the Lord's Prayer or I always uh, use this acronym of, of prayer. I always pray, pray at night. Well, I always pray in the morning. Well, I pray uh, evening, morning, and at noon because that's what David did. And I've got this, this method. I always stand with my hands up. No, I always, I'm always on my knees. I'm always laying down. I'm always sitting. I, t I do it out loud. I, I do it silently, right? So it could be all of these different methods or styles that just becomes the way that's like, ah, this is the, the experience that I've had. My, my preferred method of Bible reading or some other application of a biblical command or principle that we talked about throughout our conscience series. We talked about that cell phone, right? Like flee sexual morality. Yes, and amen, of course. Right? So in order to do that, if I get rid of my cell phone and that helps me to honor Christ, great. But remember, we talked about there's a big difference between the biblical command flee sexual immorality and the application of throw out your cell phone. Right? A Christian must flee sexual immorality. Biblical command. There's no sense in which you can say a Christian must throw away their smartphone. Maybe. Maybe not. And actually, you can throw away your smartphone and still be filled with lust and pride. Whenever your style, your method, your application becomes the style or method or application, you are in danger of being taken captive by experiences. When I did this, it made all the difference. You must do it too. When I started reading this way, oh, just changed everything. Do you read that way? No, you, oh, that's what you're missing. Whatever we are taken captive by, we seek to captivate others with as well. That's what Paul's warning against. They have been taken captive, and now they're seeking to take you captive. Don't let them. And as you're captivated by things that are other than Christ. Don't take others with you. Jesus had the same warning against the Pharisees. This sort of captivated and captivating others, this can become even more pronounced as, as speakers or authors, pastors, insist that they alone have finally found the secret for Christian joy or fulfillment or true intimate fellowship with God. Just read their blog, listen to their podcast, buy their book, or attend their conference. And the problem with that isn't the desire for Christian joy or fulfillment or intimate fellowship with God. I, I want joy. I want fulfillment. I want intimate fellowship with God. I believe I was made for all of those things, and so were you. So it's not like, oh, I shouldn't want joy. I shouldn't want fulfillment. I shouldn't want fellowship with God. No, you should, and you should pursue those things. The problem is that thinking that the pursuit of those things can be reduced to a method and failing to recognize that all you need in joy and fulfillment and intimate fellowship with God, all you need, you already have in Christ. You have been filled in him. It's not like, what am I missing? Nothing. You have Jesus. Christ is everything, and in Christ, you have everything that you need. 
That doesn't mean like, oh, so you have the joy, you have the fulfillment, you have the intimate fellowship, right? But it's not like add something to it in order to get it. Christ is what you need. Christ is what you have. Trying to think through this kind of mystical, superstitious, vision-driven aspect of this false teaching reminded me of some advice I got in high school from a mentor of mine. Who I believe loved the Lord and loved me. I'm thankful for him. Obviously not going to give his name because I'm about to criticize him in the sermon. I wanted to honor Christ. Uh, I felt like something was missing. Rules were, were an easy way to try to do that. I think that's what I wanted to lean on, but it still felt, right, this isn't, this isn't everything. So he told me uh, in the gym at, at Cross Lanes Christian School, he told me to read the Footprints in the Sand poem right before I went to sleep, like with a knowing look that like I would I would have a dream of walking on the beach and having a conversation with Jesus. You guys know what I'm talking about? Some of you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, but some of you really know what I'm talking about. Uh, well, we had a copy uh, in our house, and I'm not bashing the, the poem unless you, like, you use it this way. Then I'm definitely bashing the poem. So we had a copy in our house. I read it before bed one night, and nothing happened. No special dream. No vision of talking with Jesus. And it was then that he carried you. I carried you, right? It's first person. Perhaps, perhaps this mentor, he could have just pointed me back to God's word and the gospel promise that I have been filled in Christ. What am I missing? You know, actually, you're not missing anything. You have Jesus, and you've been filled in him. You don't need another vision, another experience. And God's worked through those things, right? Reading about Ezekiel, man, that guy had some weird visions. They were from God, and he did weird stuff out of it. You haven't read Ezekiel? You should, because it, I mean, it is weird. But it's a great weird, and God was using that, right? So it's not like you can just say, like, no, nobody's ever had any visions. Nobody's ever had any dreams. So you're ignoring your Bible if you think those type of things. No one has ever had an experience of fellowship with God. All, all sorts of people have had experiences with fellowship with God, right? And, and some people think that they have, and they had indigestion, right? Like, my dreams last night, I hope they weren't from God, because they were weird. The problem wasn't the visions. Paul had visions, visions that he talked about. The problem isn't believing that God works in extraordinary ways. He has and he does. The problem comes with basing your Christian walk only on these things, only on the extraordinary, condemning others for not having these experiences and trying to draw a following to yourself. Have you had these dreams? Have you had these visions? Do you fast eight days every week? You don't? Oh, I do. And it has made all the difference. You should read this book and then just come to my seminars and I will show you the secret way. Right? That's the same kind of nonsense that these false teachers were teaching. And Paul's like, we have Jesus. You've been filled in him. The problem with these false teachers was that they were disconnected from Christ. Don't let people like that draw you in and disqualify you. Don't live in the fear of man that allows the judgment from other people or, or this, uh, well, you're missing something, so you're off the path because all you're doing is following Christ. Don't let them disqualify you, draw you aside, take you captive. Don't let these plausible, good-sounding arguments right, delude you. Don't be taken captive by anything other than Christ. Don't be taken captive by rules. Don't be taken captive by experiences. Here's the solution to these dangers. Be captivated by Christ. Be captivated by Christ as part of his body. Verse 19. Here's the biggest problem that these had. They were insisting on things. They were puffed up. They went on and on about their visions. But the biggest problem they had is that they were not holding fast to the head. The head, which is Christ. The head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. The test for every rule, every tradition, every spiritual experience, and every person that would use rules, traditions, and spiritual experiences to lead or to influence you, including the person who's standing in this pulpit and anybody else who ever does. This isn't just like an other people thing. The rule to test all of these things is... Does this help me hold fast to Christ and grow with his body? Whatever your practice is, whatever the experience that somebody else had or that you had, whatever the method, whatever the rule, 
does this help me hold fast to Christ and to grow as part of his body? And it's not a default that that's going to happen. We go back to the circle, right? There's one degree that is holding fast to Christ and 359 that are not. If the answer is yes, this is helping me hold fast to Christ, then proceed. If the answer is no, then abandon the pursuit of that experience and and stay away from that person until you are focused on Christ once more. These false teachers were puffed up about themselves in their arrogant thinking because they were so special, they were so spiritual, they were so smart and so wise, they didn't need Christ anymore. So they weren't holding fast to the head. They figured it out on our own. And the answer is, and that Christ plus. You don't get to have Christ plus. It's just Christ. There is no life apart from connection to the head. That's the point of this metaphor, right? You chop off the head, you die, right? You sever the body from the head, you have death. And that, more than anything else, happens in our Christian life. We're disconnected from Christ, the head. There is no life. There is no growth. Paul focuses on the danger of these false teachings. They not only draw one's attention away from Christ, they also disrupt the unity of the church that finds her foundation on Christ and him alone. And this emphasis on the entire body, the whole body, likewise, it points to the need of every member to be dependent on Christ and to the unity of this body under this head, right? It's, it's be captivated by Christ as part of his body. So it's not separate yourself from all teachers. And also, just a little caveat, just because of a, a teaching or a rule or a practice, just because it has led you, right, to drift, doesn't make that person evil, doesn't make that rule wrong, doesn't make that practice demonic, right? Because good things can be misused by sinful people, and we're sinful people, okay? So there can be times when somebody is seeking to draw you to Christ, and you're actually being drawn away from Christ through them. Be careful. From Christ, our head, we as a body of believers are nourished and knit together. As we as a body hold fast to Christ together, we grow with a growth that comes from God. This is not just some individualistic promise. So many times in Colossians and in other things, the growth happens in the context of the body. This echoes Paul's struggle that he talked about at the beginning of chapter two. Do you remember this? I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face The struggle that he had was that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach together all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. According to the perfect wisdom and sovereign plan of God, every Christian is connected to Christ as they are connected to other Christians in a local body of believers. That's God's plan. Risen King Church is not the only local body in the world or in the area. We're in like, what, a 200-foot radius. But for those of you who are here right now, it is the local body that you are knit together with right now. This is the place that God has drawn you to as a part of his body to be connected to the head, which is Christ, so that nourishment can flow from Christ to his body, through his body to those parts, and then we have a growth that is from God. That's what he says here. We have to hold fast to the head because the head is connected to the body. The body isn't just one part. Are you following? I'm not, I'm not trying to make anything up here. The whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments. The whole body grows with a growth that is from God. It means that this people right now is where God is working to grow you, right? Have you, have you grasped that, right? Has that, has that clicked, right? That's, that's clicking for me like weekly in a way that I'm grateful that all of you 
And what God is doing in your life is working to grow me. Right? So in, in your close relationships here and in the people that you, right, the, the weak and the strong loving each other together, right, is sanctification. And do you remember, it's not just the strong are the sanctified, wise, mature, and the weak are the unsanctified, immature fools, right? Does Paul say that? Absolutely not, right? Paul's just kind of like, look, there's sinful parts on both sides, and you're weaker and you're stronger. And matter of fact, when God pushes you all together into one body, gathering together to worship in one building, right? Ah, that's where growth happens. It's like, well, these are the ways that I want to grow. God's like, that's fine, but here's the way that I want you to grow, Right? And so all of the things that God's doing in me are then the sanctifying forces in Leanne's life, in Keith's life, in Mary Beth's life. It's like, ah, Peter is this. Yeah, and God's sanctifying you through me and sanctifying me through you, right? Isn't that a beautiful thing? Like family, body, growth. It's not the way that we would want it, right? We want to just all be together in a place where we all agree and there are no differences and we just celebrate that together. It's like, but, but we're too unsanctified for that. Right? It's through the friction that our flesh is shown. And then it shows that, that friction, that sinful response to other believers in one body shows our disconnect from the head. I want to be away from the body. Well, be it, but being away from the body is away from the head. So there's no growth that comes to you as you separate yourself from a body. That with that body, like, it's like God just keeps sanctifying me in all the ways that I don't want to be sanctified. Does that, does that happen to you? That's for your good. That's for his glory. That's Christ as the head. This is where God is working to grow us. Don't let anyone take you captive by rules apart from Christ. Don't let anyone take you captive by experiences apart from Christ. Be captivated by Christ as part of his body, which is the church. Father, thank you for Christ. Please open our eyes to see where we are, where we are drifting, where, where we are being taken captive. Open our eyes to behold this, to cling to Christ, to repent of our idolatry in all of its various forms. So that Christ may be glorified. You are wise. You are faithful. Your plan is perfect. Thank you for this body filled with redeemed sinners knit together under one head growing with a growth that is from you may we rejoice in that abound in thanksgiving and love one another um, to follow christ amen now, just as we have uh just as we have those traditions those um I don't know, rules, those different things that we can do that for them, you know, required faith. You could be circumcised, you could offer sacrifices, you could do all those different things, and without faith, you remain, they remain distant from God. Really, the same thing is true with this table. We have the things that God has instituted for us, that Christ has said, do this as you remember me. Do this in worship, right? But that requires faith, because there's nothing here in the bread and the cup that'll just make you holy if you are using it disconnected from Christ. But we're not disconnected from Christ. We're in Christ. And so we come in faith and we say, you know what, this bread broken for me was Christ taking the, my debts on himself on the cross. His body was broken, that perfect righteousness, an acceptable sacrifice. His blood, blood of the new covenant was poured out, right? His life in exchange for mine. And now we have this also points that fulfillment, right? Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So as you come, as you're a follower of Christ, come uh, thinking of Christ. Come worshiping Christ. Come grateful for Christ. We're rejoicing in, in our, uh, our resurrection like we talked about last week, or our transgressions, our debts being forgiven, or the, the victory that Christ has over Satan and the demons, all of this expressed on the cross, the triumph of of Christ. Come thinking about that. Come in faith that, that Christ has offered himself to you. You have received him and you are new and forgiven and victorious because of Christ, in Christ. 
You don't have to have, you don't, let's just say this, you don't have a perfect understanding of the gospel. If you're like, no, I do. It's like, maybe sit out the table and think about it a little bit more. But if you're like, oh, maybe I don't, maybe I don't know enough. Maybe I don't believe enough to come to the table. Oh, that's, it's not a worthiness. Worthy in Christ, right? So come in faith, trusting, yes, Jesus did this for me. Maybe I don't understand all aspects of it, but I know Christ died, so I am forgiven. I know that he rose from the dead. I know he's coming back. I'm eager for that, right? That's the faith that we come to. Right? This, this is a small snack that's useless to us, that could actually distract us from Christ and take us captive, if not through faith in Christ. With faith in Christ, it's Jesus saying, come and take of me. You are mine, I am yours, and one day we'll be together forever to fellowship. Faith. So, if you're a follower of Christ, not perfect, then we invite you, as Christ invites you, to come to this table to receive in gratitude what Christ has offered for you. If you've not been to uh, Risen King when we've done um, partaking of the table together uh, before, uh, deacons will dismiss you, come down the center aisle, receive the elements, return to your seats, uh, and then after everybody has the elements, we'll partake of them together, just so you know what to expect. Let's give thanks, and then you'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for Jesus, his perfect life, his death on the cross, his body broken, his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you that it was sufficient, it was enough, all that is required of us. Please give us faith to worship you, uh, even as we come to this table. May it be for your glory. Amen.